Jude, verses 5 through 7, is where we've been the last uh, several weeks that we have met to study through this uh, epistle. So we begin in verse 5 in our reading tonight, and we'll be looking at verse 7 as far as our study goes, but reviewing verses 5 and 6 as well. Jude wrote, I will therefore put you in remembrance, though ye once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not, and the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Now, before we even move further, let's look at verse 5 again, the beginning of the verse, because it begins by Jude stating, I will therefore put you in remembrance. So what, the reason he's saying, for this reason, for this cause, I remind you of these truths that you already know this, but I'm going to remind you of this. And if you notice back to verse 4, it's important to recognize the reason he is making, give, providing this reminder to the reader. He says, for there are certain men crept in unawares. In other words, there were those who had, had risen up even within the church, if you will, or came into the fellowship of the church, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, and then he makes a statement, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And so again, what Paul or what Jude, I'm sorry, is saying here is that these men have have used the grace of God and therefore teaching the grace of God and living their lives in such a manner, claiming the grace of God, but turning God's grace into lasciviousness, which again goes back to uh, its root form of of uh, it's licentiousness, which is licentia, which is freedom or license. And so he's saying that they turn the grace of God into this license to sin. They turn the grace of God into freedom to sin. Also referred to, as, of course, as antinomianism, as though there is no uh, law by which we live by or unto. Now, there's a danger here. Let me just address this briefly before we move forward. There's a danger in, in, in this because there's as is usually the case, there are extremes by which people uh, would view such, such statements, if you will. Um, so you have this, this idea of antinomianism, meaning uh, no law, it's just all grace. Now, the Scripture clearly teaches we're not under the law, but we're under grace. But then again, Paul teaches us in Corinthians when he makes the statement concerning how that he, he becomes all things to all men, as many people reference that so many times. But the, the statement Paul is making in, in that entire discourse there is he's making the point and explaining the point that to those who are under the law, he comes to them as under the law. And what he's saying is that I deal with them where they are. I approach them where they are. So in other words, Paul would have never gone to the Gentiles in declaring are referencing Judaism and the truths of, uh, that, from which that was uh, based in, in, in biblical Judaism, if you will, that which once was and that which God ordained, but then what it became, of course, is another matter. But yet, Paul would not go to the Gentiles and start speaking to them on, those base, on the basis of Judaism. But he says, then as to those that are without law, as without law, but under the law of Christ. And so Paul is saying there, of course, that I go to the Gentiles 
understanding where they are and not going to them as I would a Jew approaching them because they don't have the understanding as the Jew would. And he goes, I go to the Jew as a Jew uh, as understanding where they're coming from and being able to approach him in that manner. But then the statement he made was, as one who's without law, I go to them as one without law, but under the law of God or under the law of Christ. And so what he's saying is that he is still under the law of Christ and the law of Christ is righteousness. So, Paul is clearly stating that though he is free from sin, he is bound to righteousness. So grace does not set him free to sin. Grace set him free from sin and sets him free unto righteousness. Again, to live out the truth of righteousness, which is something he could have never done before. And so these men had turned the grace of God into the freedom to sin and to to, uh, a license to sin. And by doing so, therefore, they are denying the only Lord God, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So to, to think that grace is a provision of God, he's made for us for the purpose of continuing in sin, is, is absolutely contradictive to the entirety of the teaching of scriptures concerning the matter of grace. And so Paul is, is, is making that known, and here as well Jude does the same in saying that to, to, make, to view grace as though it's a license to sin or freedom to sin is to deny the Lord God, to deny the Lord Jesus Christ. Obviously, it, it totally perverts the entire purpose for this grace which we have been given. And so therefore, Paul writes, he says, or I'm sorry, Jude writes, I will therefore put you in remembrance because of this, because of these men that, that use the grace of God as a means of freedom to sin. And he's saying, you need to be reminded of these truths. There are those who come in teaching these things, but yet, there are warnings that you are well aware of throughout the Scriptures and throughout the Old Testament concerning those who lived in such a manner and lived in such unbelief. And so we see these three examples given, verse 5, verse 6, and verse 7. So here Jude lists three historical warnings concerning the dangers of unbelief and the end of those who would live in and propagate such unbelief. Even those who had crept into the church, as he mentions in verse 4. Now, while these sins and their outcome are provided as a reminder of God's judgment of those who continue in unbelief, we are also reminded within these warnings of the dangers present even within the lives of believers to allow such manifestations of unbelief to creep into our lives when we are not diligent to guard against such sin. Now, there is no sin to which we are immune, and we must recognize that as believers. We're not immune to sin. But God is faithful to provide and escape by his grace. In 2 Peter 2, 4 and verse 9 we read, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, verse 9, the Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. So God is faithful, and we looked at these verses previously, but God is faithful to deliver the godly, those he has redeemed, and he is just as faithful in executing his judgment upon the ungodly, the unjust, or those who continue in unbelief. So within these verses, Jude is reminding us that God is faithful and that we are to faithfully guard against such unbelief in our own lives, and he gives the examples of those as well, making it known that those who propagate such heretical teaching, those who embrace such such nonsense as though God has given us grace as it means to provide opportunity for us to continue in sin, 
that God will judge them. They will not escape judgment. And this is the, this is the reminder Judah's giving us. He's saying that they're still going to be judged. And then he uses these three examples to emphasize this truth. Each of the three examples provided include distinct warnings for us to consider. We saw first, Israel's exodus is a reminder of the danger of apathy. In verse 5, he says, The Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. Now, as we've studied weeks gone by, when we are not intentionally fervent concerning the faith, apathy and complacency become a potential problem of which no one is immune. And it's easy to become comfortable, and there is an ever-present danger of taking God's grace and God's goodness for granted in our lives. Paul warned of such apathy and unbelief in his letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10, 1-13, and we looked at that some weeks back. The second example in verse 6 that Jude provided is that of the fallen angels, or the, the sinful angels. The unholy angels are a reminder of the danger of discontentment. Verse 6 says, "...and the angels which kept not their first estate..." But left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. These angels which kept not their first estate were not content with the position the Lord had given them, nor his provision for them. Discontentment is a sin that is rooted in thanklessness and pride, and often manifests itself by one's expressed sense of entitlement, which is based in an exalted view of oneself. So because people are filled with pride, they therefore have this sense of entitlement, which all is a result of being unthankful and having this idea that we deserve more than we have, we deserve better than we have, and that's exactly where these angels were. God created these angels who are worshiping him, who are in in his very presence in eternity, and yet as we know is the case with Satan himself, thinking that he deserves more, that he should have more, that he should be exalted more, and and therefore falls due to this sense of entitlement based in pride and unbelief because if we are truly believing, as Scripture teaches, we then understand, acknowledge, and recognize, and submit to, and fully believe That God alone is worthy of worship. God alone is worthy of exaltation. God alone is worthy of this position of lordship and kingship as creator, as God, as Lord of all eternity. And so what do I deserve of him? Nothing. I deserve nothing good of him, and yet I receive good of him. So here these angels, of course, they fail. And we saw in our study of this as well, there's only one thing that prevented the angels who did not fall from falling. And that's told to us by Paul in his epistle when he wrote and stated that there were elect angels. There were chosen angels. Those are the holy angels which did not fall. The rest of them did. And so even the angels themselves cannot boast the ones who are in heaven with the Lord even at this moment, the holy angels, they cannot boast in themselves or that they did not fall because they were, only reason they didn't fall is because God preserved them from falling. And Jude even references that as well, of course, concerning us in the latter verses of this epistle. Now, in verse 7, we find the third and last warning provided by Jude in this portion of his epistle. And it's important for us to remember that in each of these warnings, it is unbelief which is at the root of each of these sins. So again, uh, the, the fact that we saw, first of all, with Israel, 
and their exodus, the apathy that was present with them was due to unbelief. Remember, God delivers them out of Exodus. He's leading them by Moses, or out of Egypt in the Exodus. He's leading them by Moses. And before long, they're murmuring and griping and complaining and saying it'd be better to die in Egypt. It was so much better in Egypt. Of course it wasn't better in Egypt, but yet that's where they were at this moment. And they were, they were apathetic towards the grace that had been given them, towards God's power demonstrated unto them. And then you find his will and his provision for them. Then the unholy angels, again, being discontent, they were not satisfied in the place God had put them. They were not satisfied as God had created them. Therefore, they were discontent. And now we find in the third example with Sodom and Gomorrah, this is a reminder of the danger of sinful indulgence. Look at verse 7. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh and set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Now, let me again remind you of this context. Judah saying, the people who turn the grace of God, the goodness of God, the deliverance that God has provided, the redemption he has provided into freedom to sin are going to be judged as surely as each of these three were judged by God. They will face judgment. But again, we must be reminded as believers that we are not immune to apathy. We are not immune to discontentment. And we are not immune from sinful indulgence, at least to a degree. None of us are immune from these things. Now, we know that God is going to conform us to the image of Christ. We know that the Holy Spirit will convict us. We know that we will be chastened. And we know that there is even a sin unto death. So we know that a believer cannot just live a lifestyle of sin. That's totally against what Scripture teaches about being a believer in Jesus Christ. Not that we shouldn't, we can't. God will not allow it to be. He will put an end to it. So we're aware of that, but that does not mean that we are immune from the temptation or entering into such behavior. If we're not careful, here's what we do. We will truly think too highly of ourselves. (laughs) And we forget that we are only where we are by the grace of God. We, again, as we're looking at in Philippians on Sunday morning, in, in the morning services and our studies in Philippians, that it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do. The desire to even pursue righteousness comes from God alone. So again, this is not something that we have cultivated ourselves or initiated ourselves. This is God's working in us. So we must be aware of these truths and these warnings. As we've clearly seen in each of these examples, there are many different manifestations of unbelief. And in each of the examples, as I have mentioned, we are reminded, as Jude makes very clear, that at the end of unbelief is destruction. God destroyed those of Israel who believed not, and he has reserved the unholy angels in everlasting chains unto the great day of judgment. And those of Sodom and Gomorrah suffered eternal fire. In like manner, God will faithfully judge those who pervert his truth, and their end will be as those within these examples provided by Jude. Now, Jude's list of examples demonstrates a natural digression of unbelief, if you will. Notice, apathy first, right? Apathy meaning, of course, this complacent view, this apathetic spirit and attitude towards the deliverance God has provided, towards the provision of even Christ himself. Follow this for a moment. That rock in 1 Corinthians, and we've dealt with this already in chapter 10, but that rock that God provided for water when the people were thirsting, that rock 
Paul says in Corinthians, that rock was Christ. God's provision. And that's why, again, Moses, of course, did not enter into the promised land into Canaan was because the second time he smote the rock rather than speaking to the rock. And some may say, well, what's the big deal? Well, if that rock was Christ, Christ would be smitten once and for all. And notice this, through him being smitten, through him dying, through his suffering, through his substitutionary death, now that Christ has been provided for us in redemption, when I sin, he doesn't have to die for me again. That's all taken care of. All I have to do is speak to him, approach him. And provision has already been made on my behalf. And Moses went and smote the rock twice, a second time, and therefore God said, you will not enter into the promised land because you have done this. So the apathy is a sense of an attitude of complacency and apathy towards God's deliverance, where he's pulled us from. Again, notice, it's better to die in Egypt than it is to be out here. No, it's much better out here with God's provision than it is in Egypt under the taskmasters that were present. But yet, that was their mentality. They, oh, you know, we're tired of this manna. We want, we want something more. So God gives them bird. God gives them the water, right? He, he provides for them faithfully, and they are, ap- they are not grateful. They are apathetic, which, of course, is then leading to discontentment because we deserve more than this. Look, they deserve nothing good of God, and yet God provides for them, God delivers them, and then they are discontent with where they are. And then that, of course, just digresses to this sinful indulgence. What did the people do? Do you recall again? It's better to die in Egypt. No, it's not. We always want more. And then what happens? You find them involved in all sorts of immorality and ungodliness because this is where they're at. They're not thankful, they're discontent, and therefore they want to just satisfy themselves. So the scriptures refer to Sodom and Gomorrah consistently concerning the sinfulness and their indulgence in sin, along with the great destruction that followed. Concerning the severity of the judgment which fell upon Sodom, which would be exceeded by the devastation of those who reject his truth, Jesus stated in Matthew ten fourteen and 15, And whosoever shall not receive you nor hear your words, when you depart out of that house or city, shake off the dust of your feet. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Now, those are strong words, but understand the reason he brings Sodom and Gomorrah into the conversation. It's because he's saying it will be worse for them than the judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah, which was God pouring down fire and brimstone upon the city. This is severe judgment. And he's saying it'll be worse for those who reject my truth. Jesus used Sodom as well in his destruction as a reference to the severity of the judgment upon those who witnessed the mighty works of God and yet still continued in unbelief. And concerning the judgment which will ultimately consume all those in unbelief, he states in Luke 17, verses 26 through 30. And as it was in the days of Noah, so shall, also it, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat and drink, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, also, as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built it. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. 
in regards to the Lord's faithfulness to judge the wicked and preserve his people. Peter wrote in 2 Peter 2, 4 through 6, we referenced one of these verses a moment ago. But for if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into the chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an ensample unto those that should or that after should live ungodly. So again, he uses Sodom here as this example of of utter destruction and God overthrowing the cities and fire and brimstone raining down upon them. And then, of course, there's this matter of Jude in verse 7 of Jude. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Jude further explains that Sodom and Gomorrah are examples of the severity of God's judgment upon such unbelief. The scriptures clearly indicate the people of Sodom were exceedingly wicked. And yet, the Lord declares even a greater judgment upon those who have seen the works of God and heard the word of God and yet continue in their unbelief of rejecting God and his provision in Jesus Christ. In Matthew eleven twenty one through 24, Jesus said, Woe unto thee, Chorazin, woe unto thee, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. That is a condemning statement. The Lord is saying, if they would have seen what you have seen, if they would have experienced what you would have experienced, and we're talking about the physical, earthly miracles of Jesus. He's saying, if Sodom and Gomorrah would have seen me do what I have done in your city, he said they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. So let's pause for just a moment and consider this. How much worse is the judgment upon those who have heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and yet continue in unbelief? Let me remind you of something, too. You'll find in Luke's gospel concerning Lazarus and the rich man, that there was a remembrance. When he left up his eyes in hell, being in torment, he remembered things from this life. He remembered some things. And think about the torment in itself alone concerning the rejection of the gospel, the rejection of Christ, the rejection of truth, and yet eternally perishing. These previously mentioned passages of Scripture indicate, of course, there is a digression to unbelief. And this digression is manifested in ultimate rejection of not only truth, but the very thought of God is continually rejected and denied. Paul spoke to this matter in his epistle to the believers in Rome, in Romans chapter 1. And I'll read quite a few verses here if you'd like to turn with me, verses 18 through 32. Paul wrote, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. You go back to Psalms, the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, night and night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. 
Their light has gone out into all the world. So the, the point is the testimony of creation is the testimony that there is a God. And all men realize that there... Listen, men will reject the, the reality of God. They will reject, reject the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. They will reject the gospel. They will do their best to live their lives in denial and, and pushing away out of the thought of their very heart and mind the fact that there is a God. But here's what all men know. All men know that there is something greater and bigger than them. There's not a man that is not aware of that truth. They know that all this was already existent when they came on the scene. That itself is the testimony. There is someone, something bigger than me. It's irrefutable, though they reject and deny it. And that's what Paul is speaking of here, verse 21. Because that, when they knew God. Now, he's not talking about spiritually having a relationship with God. He's saying when they knew God in this context, they know that God is. They cannot refute this. They know that there's a creator. They know that they are inferior to a superior being. They know that. And yet, they glorify him not as God. They do not submit to him as God. They do not humble themselves before him. Neither were thankful but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. By the way, remember, Paul specifically here is speaking to Jews, is he not? And did God not, did God, now he's going to bring Gentiles into the picture, but right now he's dealing with the fact of these Jews primarily, and, and Gentiles will be involved in this, but yet, notice this, God had revealed himself to his people, Israel, all through the Old Testament, and yet they glorify him not as God. And evidence and proof of that is that when Jesus comes onto the scene, into the picture, if you will, as I've mentioned before, from Malachi's day to Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, that time frame I'm speaking of, the first century, or the coming of Christ, the manifestation of Christ in the flesh, the incarnation, whenever that took place, it required, as Malachi prophesied, that the messenger would come, who is John the Baptist, making way for the Lord Jesus Christ because the people themselves were so far removed from genuine worship of God that they could not recognize the very Son of God when He appears. So men are without excuse because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause, God gave them up into vile affections, for even their women did change their natural use into that which is against nature, and likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. And even, and now here, and look, verse 28, there is a whole catalog of sins that Paul is about to mention. And you just spoke about the vain imaginations and the unbridled immorality that exists whenever men refuse to worship God and glorify God for who he is, and they will refuse to acknowledge him for who he is. And, and all these things are true, but verse 28 is showing us the problem. Here is the issue. They would not glorify God. He's already laid that out. And then he says, 
and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. It's not only they will not submit themselves to God, they don't even want to think about God. They want to push as far away from them this thought and this reality and this truth. And why is that? Why is that? Again, listen, no one's really offended as much as they may claim. No one's really offended at an infant in a manger. Let me tell you what does offend men. The thought that they will stand before the judge of eternity. And so, of course, men want to push that out of their minds. They don't want to think of these things. He says that God gave them over to a reparate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Now look at verse 29. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. You know, when you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there is an account of this man who is committing fornication with his father's wife, which is his stepmom, of course, obviously, as it's stated, and as terrible and as horrible as that is, Paul, in that passage, let's turn there for a moment, because it relates exactly to what is being spoken of here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, let's look at what Paul is actually truly concerned with here. He says in verse 5, chapter 5, verse 1, it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. He's saying this is of a very base degree, obviously. He's saying it's not just there's fornication going on, but this man has taken his father's wife and is having, committing fornication with her. Then he says, this is, look at what he says in verse 2, and ye are puffed up. And have not rather mourned that he hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. Here's what Paul is talking about. He says, listen, you should be in grief over this sin and over this wickedness. And, obviously, you should deal with this matter in a biblical, ecclesiastical, appropriate manner in righteousness. In rebuke and correction and ultimately casting him out if that's what's necessary. If there will be no repentance that he can be restored. But notice what Paul says. You are puffed up. Well, why were they puffed up? What is that? You think they went around going, oh, guess what we have in our church? We have a man who's taken his father's wife. and for No, they weren't going out and bragging about this. Let me tell you what they were proud about. They were proud about their tolerance of him rather than dealing with the sin in a righteous manner. What do you think Paul's talking about here? Look again at, at the latter part of chapter one of Romans, who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Tolerance. Oh, and I know, listen, I'm fully aware we live in a day, a day and age of tolerance until it comes to biblical truth in Christianity. 
then there's no tolerance at all. But apart from that, everyone's tolerant of everything. But here, the matter is, people refusing, refusing to glorify God, refusing to retain God in their knowledge, and God gives them over to this reprobate, this unbridled mind of of immorality, of every evil imagination, of every sinful thought and imagination to be performed. I've referred to this passage often as the passive judgment of God. Now we know that God could have easily just struck down fire and brimstone as he did with Sodom and Gomorrah in the cities of the plain. Could he not do that? Of course he could. But what does God do here? He says, okay, sin has a consequence. What is the consequence of sin? Death. And you see what God is doing here? He's saying, I'll give you, I will let you do this, but you are going to self-destruct. That's what this results in. And the self-destruction, here's what you need to understand. The self-destruction is not in any one of this, these list, this list of sins. The self-destruction is a result of unbelief in which men will not glorify God and do not retain God in their knowledge, rejecting truth, rejecting God, rejecting salvation, rejecting Christ, rejecting the provision of God, and hence it results in a life of self-destruction. And look, this again is the beauty of redemption, though, when you understand this as well. Every single one of us would have self-destructed without divine intervention. There's not one of us. That doesn't mean you would fall prey to maybe the same exact list of sins in every category or in every, every man. Or not every man who is unredeemed and unregenerate will live his life in, in the same degenerate manner as another may. But the point of the matter is he will self-destruct all the same apart from divine intervention, apart from salvation. So... While Paul addressed many sins in Romans chapter 1, all the listed sins are not the real problem, but are the symptom of the underlying problem of unbelief. It is because of the sin of unbelief, the people's rejection of God, not wanting to retain God in their knowledge, that all of these sins are manifested. In other words, all of these listed sins are the manifestation of the unbelief within the hearts of those who commit such sins. It is not these sins that are the problem, It is not because of any one of these sins that men perish, but rather it is because of their unbelief that they perish. And the Gospel of John makes this very clear. In John 3, 17 through 21, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he commits all these sins. No, why is he condemned? Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation. Notice how this progresses. That light is come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. So Jude warns, Sodom and Gomorrah were guilty uh, of the sin, of, of course, of unbelief, but the sinful indulgence is how this unbelief manifested itself in their lives. And we see in verse 7 again, even as Sodom and Gomorrah, and listen to the words again now in light of all that we've seen concerning the references to Sodom and Gomorrah, and there are more than these alone, but also what Paul says in Romans 1. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like 
manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. The people gave themselves over to sexual immorality, even of the basest sort. And there was no limit to their wickedness. If they could imagine it, such as the example Paul provided in Romans, then they would do it. The warnings of the limitless depths of sinful indulgence is a reminder to all of us of the gravity of man's depraved nature and condition. Apart from the divine intervention of God, as I've mentioned on our behalf, there is no limit to our wickedness. I've said this to you many times, I'll say it again to you. This flesh in which you live and this flesh in which I live is a wicked flesh. Hence, the Scripture teaches us, as Paul says in Galatians 5, Romans 7 as well alludes to this, but Galatians 5, that the spirit lusteth against the, uh, the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh so that, they are, so that they are contrary the one to the other, that you cannot do the things that you would. Now, Paul here speaking to believers at Galatia, the churches of Galatia, and he's talking to believers and saying there's this war that's going on between the flesh and the spirit. Now, now understand again, when Paul says the word flesh in this context, there are times in Scripture when the word flesh is in reference to your actual flesh and bones. And then there's time in which the word flesh is in relation or used in reference to the sinful nature that you possess. And in this case, he's talking about that sinful nature. He says that there is a, the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh so that they are contrary the one to the other. So there's a sinful nature, as Paul defines in Romans 7, there's a sinful nature that abides within me, but I also possess the spirit of God that is within me. And this is the war. And again, uh, to emphasize this more so and explain it further, the word lusteth that is used there in Galatians 5, the meaning of the context of what is being stated is that the flesh desires to make a claim or take claim of that which it has no rightful claim. Because remember, the Scripture clearly states, 1 Corinthians 6, that, no, you, what? No, you're not. You're not your own. You're bought with a price, right? Therefore, glorify God in both your body and spirit, which are God's. So he's purchased us. We don't belong to ourselves. We don't belong to sin. But there's still a sinful fleshly nature within me, within this body. And so the fleshly nature wants to control my body. That is the problem. And yet the Spirit's at constant war against that because the Spirit of Christ lives within me. Here's what I'm saying to you. Were it not for the Spirit of God within me, His grace and Him, him uh, uh, restraining, if you will, the sinful flesh then there is no sin that I could not or would not commit. In other words, sinful indulgence is a real problem, but thank God that His Spirit dwells within us. And this brings us again to, by the time I get to verses 24 and 25, I probably will just say amen because I've already referenced this so many times and will continue to when Jude concludes his letter by saying, Now unto Him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. So the point of the matter is this. 
Those who turn the grace of God into lasciviousness, into a license to sin, they will not escape the judgment of God, just as Israel, when they were in unbelief, did not escape God's judgment, just as the fallen angels in unbelief did not escape God's judgment, just as Sodom and Gomorrah in their sinful indulgence did not forsake or did not escape God's judgment. So these who pervert the grace of God will be judged of God. But the warning is also here for us. We are to earnestly contend for the faith because if we are not diligent and intentional and purposeful in the faith and being rooted and grounded ourselves in understanding the truths of this provision of God in Jesus Christ, the one who will keep us, the one who will present us faultless and blameless, if we are not aware of this truth, then we find ourselves much more prone to fall to the sin of apathy, discontentment, and even sinful indulgence as a digression of unbelief being manifested in our lives. Remember this. Every sin that is ever manifested or every sin that we commit is a demonstration, and as a believer in Jesus Christ specifically, is a demonstration and a manifestation of unbelief that resides within us. Not meaning we are unbelievers, but meaning that we constantly are having to contend with unbelief. Think about this for a moment, if you will. Is God worthy of our absolute, total, submission, and adoration. Is he or is he not? Doesn't he declare that he is? And we say we believe that, don't we? But see, notice this. The moment that we are not doing that is the moment we're not believing that. <laughs> it hits uh, every action that comes forth sinfully out of us are, are really manifestations of residing unbelief within us because of the sinful nature that dwells in, in which we live and that dwells within this body in which we live. So we have to be aware of that and understand that we are not immune to these things. I've said to you many times, I will say it to you again, there is no sin that my sinful flesh is not capable of committing. I'm redeemed. Yes, I'm saved. I'm telling you, there is no sin that I cannot commit in this sinful flesh. But now unto him that is able to keep us from falling, to present us blameless, faultless, holy before him with exceeding joy. The only wise God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, be glory forever and ever. Amen. So we rest and trust in he who is able to do this, he who lives within us, he who is is, is dwelling in us, and we take heed of the warnings that are provided. Recognizing, again, this is in reference directly to those in verse 4, which Jude mentions, but at the same time, we are not immune from the dangers of these sins. There's times I'm apathetic. Aren't you? There's times I'm complacent. There's times that I am not content. And that's, that's shameful to even say, but there's times I'm not content as I should be. There are times there's temptation or even indulgence in sin. Maybe not to the degree of what Scripture is defining it as, of course, in Romans 1 and such, but it, look, for a believer in Jesus Christ, we, we need to understand this. In, in one respect, because we are not our own, 
Because we have been bought with a price? Because we are redeemed? Because we are to glorify God in both body and spirit, which both belong to God? Any sin is an indulgence in sin. Because we have no right to it. We don't view it like that, really. Oh, that's just a little... Th- no, we are, we are saying, at this moment, Lord, and I'm guilty just as you. I'm, I'm not preaching at you. I'm, I'm agreeing that I am guilty with you in this reality. That any time that I sin, it's because I'm saying, Lord, I think I'll take the throne at this moment instead of submitting to your lordship. That's really what it amounts to. That's not a small thing. That is a serious matter. Because we are saying we believe, and oh, he deserves all glory and honor, and he's Lord, so therefore we should submit ourselves unto him. The moment we're not in submission to him, which will manifest itself in outward or even thoughts or attitude within, spirit within, and outward actions of sinful manifestation, are the moments where we are saying we'll take lordship today. We'll, 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 we'll sit on our own throne today. And that, that's, that's quite, a, quite a statement to be making, isn't it? So, beware of the warnings as Jude lays them out. And, and the whole emphasis here, again, is this point. Grace does not provide us opportunity for sin. That's the point. Grace delivers us from this. Frees us from this, not frees us to do so. And those who think that and live such a manner, they are ripe for the judgment of God, as Scripture declares. So let's take warning that we not allow these thoughts to creep in unaware as these men crept in unaware within the church, which Jude speaks or writes. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you.